for one thing, it's got too many Francos. I feel about the <laughs> Franco family the way I do about the Mara family. There's too many fucking Francos. There's too many Maras. I need like two less. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is episode five. I'm your host, Anita Sarkeesian, and I'm back on the West Coast, which is the best coast. Woohoo! I'm joined by Carolyn Pettit. Hello. And Ebony Astor. What's up, weirdos? This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love, or alternatively, we are the feminist killjoys coming for your media. I like that last one. On today's show, we're going to check in with the latest pop culture news, dive into the disaster artist, the movie about the worst movie ever made, and discuss Wolfenstein 2 and some of our feelings on modern day AAA video game shooters. And as always, exclusively for our amazing, wonderful drip backers, we'll be recording a bonus segment. This week, there's been so much pop culture news and announcements that we're going to react to things like the Video Game Awards, Spider-Man and Jessica Jones announcements, Campo Santo's new game, In the Valley of the Gods, that god-awful Ready Player One, and more. We couldn't do this podcast without all the support from our drip backers. This podcast is entirely listener-supported on Kickstarter's new monthly crowdfunding subscription service, Drip. So if you like what you hear, please consider chipping in by visiting d.rip slash femfreak. The last tiny little bit of housekeeping before we get on with the show is, as some of you might know, Feminist Frequency is currently in the middle of our end-of-year fundraising campaign. Through all of our articles, videos, and podcasts, we strive to provide our viewers with media literacy tools to better understand intersectional feminism and apply it in their own lives. We really believe that media matters and that media can change the world for the better. Help us keep doing this work and help us keep it free for everyone. We're halfway to our goal of $25,000. Can you help us raise the rest? Just visit feministfrequency.com slash donate. If you can contribute $5, $10, $200, anything you can give makes a huge, huge difference. And we thank you endlessly. Now, on with the show. Hey, look. Hi. I'm back in the studio. Yeah, so Anita and I are actually <laughs> in the same room for the first time because you were all over Europe um, every episode we've recorded up to this point. I know. Yeah. It was a little bit weird to be like, hey, let's launch a podcast. I'm going to yeah. be gone for a the, month. The timing was not exactly <laughs> ideal on that. Yeah. It, it certainly led to some uh, some additional challenges. What are you yeah. talking yeah. about? Challenges. <laughs> Time Whatever. zones and things. Ebony's still down there in... LA, which is on fire. Yeah, how's that? Yeah, How are but you, Ebony? I'm keeping a I'm keeping a watchful eye on the news. I have a go bag ready to go, but oh, being the you know Tom Joad esque figure that I am, I always keep a go bag ready to go. Anyway, I'm always ready to ride the rails. <laughs> like, is it is it on a like stick a or like a bag? Ain't One of those new. bags on the end of a stick, like a that you just a bindle. Yeah, I got a bindle. A bindle. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Perfect. With a couple of like yeah. cans of beans and um. I'm hoping that I can steal our producer's dog to be my companion on, <laughs> on the road so I'm that sure I'm Phil not would alone. I love that. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, Carol. Yeah. We got a lot of pop culture checking ins this We week. sure do. Let's start with some news having to do with the next film in the Fantastic Beast series. Uh, Johnny Depp. Um, plays the character of Grindelwald in these films. And the next film, it was a smaller part in the first film, but the second film is actually called 
fantastic beast, The Crimes of Grindelwald, from which we can, you know, assume that his part is going to be more significant. And um, in response to increasing uproar and pressure from uh, from fans, viewers from social media, that that Johnny Depp should not be in these films because he is an abuser. Um, both the director of the film, David Yates, and um, J.K. Rowling uh, released statements within the past week about his his uh, inclusion in the film, both of which I find really troubling. Um, first, what David Yates, the director, had to say is uh, this statement, which I think is a sort of defense we so often hear of men who commit abuse. He says, you know, I can only tell you about the man I see every day. He's full of decency and kindness, and that's all I see. Whatever accusation was out there doesn't tally with the kind of human being I've been working with. Right. So we all know Johnny Depp goes to hospital, kid, children's hospitals dressed as uh, Jack Sparrow, and that he does like nice, nice things. That doesn't. Make, it doesn't mean he didn't beat ex- the shit exactly. out of his wife. We like people cannot reconcile the idea of a person simultaneously doing like really kind things and doing really horrible things. And that's the thing too is like you see all these men who who write it off as like a joke, right? Like there's an article that. Um, oh God, I'm so sorry, I'm forgetting her name, but there was a, another accusation against Dustin Hoffman that was excruciating to read and like he uh, literally assaulted her every night of their live performance and it was just written off as a joke right and so like it's really easy for other men to defend these dudes because you're like well they don't do it to you yeah right like you you're not they're not experiencing it well and other women too horribly right so like you have the case of someone like Lena Dunham you know being an example par excellence of you know the only good abuser is my friend the abuser um, so, you know, like, I don't know them in their abusive capacity. They're never shitty to me personally. I didn't see it happen. So I feel, you know, unqualified right. to uh, to address these allegations. And it's like, huh, you don't feel unqualified to address these allegations when they're safely away from you, when it might as well be in the abstract. But when, you know, the rubber meets the road and you actually have to stand on principle, um, yeah. You know, you suddenly become, you know, hear no evil, and, see no evil. Miss me with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of that, perhaps even more damaging in some ways than David Yates's statement is J.K. Rowling's statement herself. She came out, she published a statement on her website that basically uh, referred to the, um, you know, the Harry Potter filmmaking community as a huge, mutually supportive community. And she she said, um, you know, um. I accept that there will be those who are not satisfied with our choice of actor in the title role. However, conscience isn't governable by committee. Within the fictional world and outside it, we all have to do what we believe to be the right thing. Like, what? That doesn't... How can you believe that in keeping Johnny Depp in these films is the right thing? Like, what kind and of like, statement is especially that? Especially as the person who wrote one of the biggest media franchises in the world that is predicated on, like justice yeah right and like yeah yeah, exactly which again you know another conversation for another time is how you can left read or right read into star wars and harry potter and all this stuff that like the principles may or may not be super clear there or are more um uh, words (laughs) Uh, whatever explicit yeah yeah yeah, right like they're so generic right it doesn't matter yeah but at the same time like the Harry Potter world has has meant a lot to a lot of people, including yeah. us, and it's, like, yeah, or me. I don't. Yeah, I, I guess mean, I shouldn't speak for everyone well, else. The whole history, <laughs> the whole history of J.K. Rowling's political relationship yeah. with her own creation is super fascinating because, like, in the UK, right, all these you know people who grew up with Harry Potter and loved it 
took to calling uh, Jeremy Corbyn Dumbledore, right? And J.K. Rowling is more, you know, neoliberal, and she was explicitly saying Corbyn is not Dumbledore. Yeah. And so, like, it's just it's, it's, it's so kind of become a thing that's she can't control it anymore. But you know, uh, and people make it their own, and they relate yeah. to it in their own and, ways. Like, I'm I'm probably not going to go see it. Right. Like I just right. it's not I I'm going to ha- I'd have a really hard time watching that, right? So like that sucks. I I just have a question. Is it it do they know something we don't know about no. Johnny Depp being the only actor <laughs> left oh, right. in roles? Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they they these people these defenses like, "Oh, if we, you know, don't uh, you know, allow people the opportunity to grow or if we don't forgive them, we're going to lose all of these, you know, male geniuses or male creators that we love." And it's like, "Yeah, but what about all of the women, you know, and and other folks who they have preyed upon, right? You know, whose genius we'll never know." But also, are is there like a hard cap on actors right now such that if Johnny Depp isn't in this role, the movie can't be made. J.K. Rowling, you, oh boy, profound misstep. Absolutely. Somebody Uh, quit, quit hiring Johnny Depp. And in other pop culture news, the Game Awards took place uh, this past week. And there's so many things from the Game Awards that we could talk about. But I think the one thing that people are talking about more than anything else is this like, eight-minute trailer for Hideo Kojima's next game, Death Stranding. It was just the most, like, self-indulgent, (laughs) mind-boggling... thing you know that anyone has ever seen do you want to tell us what it's about i so so i do want to tell you there's a there's a i would love it if you did on 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 gamespot.com there's a hilarious headline about the trailer that says death death stranding trailer makes sense after playing four to five hours sony exec claims so it's like after you play four or five hours of the game then you'll be like oh now i get what was happening in the trailer i feel like that's always the defense like you'll understand when you play the game yeah but we've heard that before from them and what's kind of frustrating to me about the reaction to this trailer is you know a lot of the people who are ooing and aahing and talking about what a genius what an auteur what a visionary hideo kojima is are i mean a lot of the same people who if they went to like a gaming event um like uh uh any you know any event where indie games and different games were being shown and they encountered a game that was at all like abstract or unconventional or like artsy would probably be like you know what the fuck is this right but because it's kojima like we give him the benefit of the doubt and we absolutely we think well it must be super meaningful and brilliant because it's Kojima and you know there's i mean there's, you know a baby giving a thumbs up is really that, meaningful i mean that is like the most <laughs> Kojima thing i i i i could imagine it's just like it's it's just more broy bullshit that's yeah. like weird like i'm like is this dude tripping on acid all the time i mean like is he ever sober <laughs> and, and, i'm into it I'm into it as a yeah. non-gamer and I've feel you free to games. at me at Ebony Astor and be like, why are you even talking about this? But I watched the the two trailers that were available and I was like, okay, what yeah. is happening here? Question two, is this at all representative of what's going on in games right now? Because if so, this kind of like mind trip, you know, kind of mushrooms session, I'm into it. <laughs> I have no idea what's happening here. 
my my third question was like, when is someone going to send me that baby thumbs up as a gift so I can make it my avatar <laughs> and absolutely everything? So at Ebony Astor, hit me up with that gift. I'm with Carol on this though. I'm like, I'm really tired of these like dudes that are considered like geniuses yeah. in everything they do uncritically. And if you ever criticize them or anything about what they do, it's like blasphemy. You yeah. don't yeah, get it. it just, you just don't get it. I mean, the reality is that let's say a woman uh, came out of nowhere with this trailer and, you know, the exact same trailer, maybe without the like celebrity element, you know, people would not be having this kind of reaction to it. Right. I don't think there's any woman really who could who would be given that kind of benefit of the doubt about her creative genius. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. All right. So. But we want before before we leave. I just want to say anything though that stars or utilizes the talents of Mess Mickelson. Oh, why I'm the in. fuck is he in, in this shit? I know. Oh, that made me so sad. I wanted to go. Yeah, <laughs> for me, You're, for me, for me, and all right thinking people You're around play the globe. The game when it comes out. I love him. I love him. I just wish he'd go back to making yeah. great Danish movies. All right, let's get, let's get yeah. into the show. Yeah. Um, okay, so the disaster artist. Yeah, we all went to see it. Okay, I gotta confess something, which is not a confession because I'm not embarrassed by this in any way. I literally have never heard of the room before this summer. So I heard about it. What? When I was wait a minute. Yeah. Hold on. Yeah. Anita. Marie, I literally have never heard Matilda, about Matilda, Betty, Rose. Dorothy Sarkeesian. How have you never heard of The Room? I don't know, man. I have no fucking idea. But so I was, okay, I was hanging out with a friend when we were hanging out with Tom Bissell, and then Greg shows up, and I don't think, I don't know who who he is. I think he's just like a friend coming to hang out with the group. And then they start talking about the disaster artist, the book that they co-wrote, that's about this movie. And I was like, all right. And like, they're like, here, have a copy of the book. I was like, all right. Cool. I guess I'll go and they like I like I guess I'll go watch the room that this is based on before I read your book that you wrote. Like it was just this so benign thing that happened. And then I looked it up and was like, "What the fuck is this?" And they were they were so they were they were also kind of flabbergasted that I'd never heard of it or didn't know what it was or hadn't seen it. So they were like, "Oh my god, you have to tell us what you think after you watch it." So in September, I got a couple friends together, one of which hadn't seen it and watched the room for the first time, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, okay, I know we're talking about the disaster artist, but I just got to say, like, I do not understand the obsession with shitty movies. Like, I'm not one of those people that's just like, I can watch the fuck out of this. Whole- I It was excruciating to watch. For me, what's sort of interesting about The the Room as just a, a cultural artifact a cultural artifact, but and that I'm disappointed that the, that the disaster artist didn't like explore more is there's this um, so there's this uh, principle called the the Dunning Kruger effect, right? And that basically it's a psychological uh, principle that that talks about how people who have like no sense of what it means to be good in a particular area think that they are superior. Because they have no idea what the basic skill set is. Huh. And Tommy Wiseau is absolutely, like, he doesn't understand fundamentally what makes act, like, what constitutes good acting or good writing or good anything. And, but he thinks that he does, right? And so, and the, the room seems to be, like, because he has these tremendous reserves of money and everything, the room seems to be a, 
a product of that. Like, it's very much like I used to get at um, GameSpot these private messages from people who objected to something I would do in my reviews. And they'd be like, they'd always say things like, I could do this job a million times better than you. But they're the sentence would be like so many misspellings and grammar errors. They clearly <laughs> didn't even understand like the fundamentals of, of, of basic competent writing, much less like good writing. And so, you know, Tommy was so has that going on, but with like acting and writing and like filmmaking. And I guess I, I just wish the film dug more into like, like his psychology of like, where does this actually this impulse to create this thing like come from or what does it like mean to him but it, i felt it was a very kind of surface level film um in that yeah, sense like, yeah it was just presented to be like entertaining and funny but not like to actually kind of get into what why are you about the room or the disaster i'm artist? talking about the disaster oh, okay. artist i'm sorry That's yeah okay. I, I've, I've never seen the room and i probably will never see the room um and so well let me back up here. We need to get our producer to create a music tag for Ebony's hypocritical hot takes because I'm about to offer a piping <laughs> hot fresh drink. I love shows like Mystery Science Theater 3000, um, podcasts like How Did This Get Made? I love kind of the unpacking of of films that aim high, that have incredible ambition, but fail miserably for whatever reason. You know, I love unpacking that, finding out like sometimes it's, it's interesting because, you know, you'll disagree that a movie, you know, is good or bad. Um, but nevertheless, it's it's great to be part of a community of people who are talking about it and sort of, you know, um, you know, like interrogating all of the pieces that go into making a movie. But this movie, The Room, rather, it's just something that never really interested me. I don't know. There's something about it that makes me feel very uncomfortable. Um, this kind Is of it like the rampant cool- misogyny. Well, that could be it, but it's, you know, like, no, so taking a step back, <laughs> yeah. the culture of yeah. people watching the room, there's just something. Uh, distasteful to me about it. And again, this is hugely hypocritical of me. I realize that. So don't at me about this particular issue. <laughs> but yeah. there's something about like, oh, ha ha ha, we're so much cooler and funnier and we get it, you know, in a way that these people yeah, who were in no, the totally. film did well, not so, get it. And I don't know. Yeah. So I so I really enjoyed The Disaster Artist. I like I I was laughing a lot. And like it, there was something about the whole like I went by myself and the like I would sort of chuckle and the guy next to me would start chuckling in response to me laughing. Like there was a lot of like camaraderie happening in the space. Um and you know like so I think that they did a really good job of like telling this story and showing these these people and like their how this came to be. Um, I was disappointed though in like the room is super misogynist, like just in aggressively so. And that was not addressed in the disaster artist at all. And like there were, you could see the, the like possessiveness and the jealousy of Tommy when Greg got a girlfriend, but like that was the extent of it. And that was another big problem I had with the film was that it's so, it's way too easy on Tommy in the end. Like if Tom, cause he's so a, Psychologically, he's so like abusive and controlling, like psychologically in some ways to Greg and to the crew, at least as he's depicted in this film. And then in the end, there's just like this heartwarming kind of reconciliation and yeah. like, hey, Tom, you know, look what you made, Tommy. You did this I thing. Completely and agree. he's never, yeah, he's never made to like account for like the, not by the, 
I mean, the film does not take him to task for what, for who, how he behaved. Yeah, and like he was straight up abusive to people on set. Like that looks like a miserable, horrifying experience. Right. And like the fact that it was just like, oh, I like Greg come like who who I don't know like the realities of how like everything played out. Like it was this is obviously Hollywoodized in a lot of ways, um, and it's probably sanitized in a lot of ways too. But. Like, yeah, that really bothered me towards the end where it's like, well, he gets a pass. And, like, you know, he's really sad that his, like, great auteur, like, film thing didn't work out. And then everyone thinks it's funny. And so he just sort of, like, rolls with the punches and accepts that it's now a funny thing. And everything's cool. And you're like, but it's not. It's not even a little bit. Like, you don't get to treat people that way. Um, And so I – that – I, like, it it tailed off for me towards the end where I was kind of like, man, that's such a – like, of course they're going to end it this way, but I didn't like it. I loved, again, <laughs> this goes back to, um, you know, the the kind of things that I watch that do unpack horrible movies. So, like, how did this get made? All of the principals from that podcast, like Jason Mansukis, Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, were in this movie. And I loved that they were in it. People like Hannibal Buress, um, Megan Mullally. Like, I, I loved that they were in this movie. But the movie itself bored me to tears. I checked my phone, like, 40 times. <laughs> Counting down, getting out of there. For one thing, it's got too many Francos. I feel about the Franco <laughs> family the way I do about the Mara family. There's too many fucking Francos. There's too many Maras. I need like two less. Here's the thing. I am not a fan of James Franco by any stretch of the imagination. I could not get over how fucking good he was. Like, I actually had moments of being like, I know that's not Tommy, but holy shit. Like, I, I just feel like... He can act like he really embodied that role in a way that I was just like really impressed with. Right. I think there's something Mm -hmm. similar between like James Franco and somebody like Nicolas Cage in a sense, which is that they they always make choices. And even when they're not good choices, they're like interesting choices. Yeah. You know, as actors. Yeah. But I like what was super weird to me about the, the casting of Greg. Of of James Franco's brother as Greg is that they look so much alike that I I, I almost my brain kept being like that's yeah. his brother oh no 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 not in the not in the reality of the movie that's just yeah his friend. you never forget that yeah you yeah never, like because you know who these people are yeah. right so you're like it's not like it's this like you know Oscar award winning thing where you're like falling into the characters right. and you lose the like the actor no like you know that it's the Francos yeah. like like a hundred percent the whole time. Um. Yeah. The fucking I, Francos. Too many Francos. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's what it should have been called. Um. But yeah. I don't know. I. Yeah. I just. You know. I, enjoyed it. I just. Yeah. Didn't enjoy myself. And again. You know. My handle is at Ebony Aster. Feel free to argue with me about it. But this was one opportunity to go to the movies where I was like, not having a good time here. Part of it is that you know the. The things that I have seen of the room, like the bits and pieces on, you know, YouTube or whatever that I've seen. And then, you know, bookending that with James Franco's um, impression of him in this movie. Like there's a kind of active malevolence that didn't come across to me uh, in The Disaster Artist. Like, hit me up here. Did anyone else, like, when I think about Tommy Wiseau, I think of a character like Arnold Friend from that Joyce Carol Oates story, Where Are You Going, Where You've Been? Like, someone who's trying to be younger and someone who's trying to present this, like, this genial face to the world, but underneath there's something, you know, malevolent underneath there. Yeah. I, I don't know. I had a friend who... um 
who who really likes the room, like is really a part of that whole cult following. And um, he he felt like um, the film the film felt more like what Tommy wanted to make. Like we got to look into what the what the room was supposed to be from Tommy's perspective, which uh, which to yeah, me I don't really. I don't want to get. I think that he's uh, like abusive and awful and yeah. possessive, and so I don't want to like give him that. But if I try to remove from that perspective a little bit, like I think that there's something interesting about looking at it or viewing it through that lens of like what was he really trying to make and what was this like you know his this artistic expression that he felt very strongly about um, because it's not what we watch and make fun of for a decade, you know. So, yeah. All right. Disaster artist. I did not feelings. hit her. I did not. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. I thought that the teaser, <laughs> I did not. The cheeser that they released, which was just that scene over and over yeah. again, was so brilliant. Yeah, like, it just it really made me want to see this movie because I, it was it was that was it was, it was great. It was yeah. very funny. It was really good. All right, let's uh let's dive into some video games. Yay, video games. I love video games. Do you love video games? I uh, some Do you I, love all of the video games? I have games? complicated I have a complicated relationship with video what? games. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Uh so, yeah. Wolfenstein 2. Yeah, maybe before we d- dive into the substance of the game itself, I just want to quickly talk about the the ad campaign a little bit that on social media that led up to the game's release, right? Because um I really appreciated the way that that ad campaign, particularly like on Twitter, um, leaned into the uh, the presence of white supremacy and you know neo fascists in the U.S. right now by tweeting things like um, "these are not very fine people," like right, which is a reference to Trump's quote about there were some very fine people and things like that because you know because there is so much crossover. An overlap between uh, Gamergate, which was uh, a consumer movement concerned with ethics and game journalism, <laughs> and, and and the alt right, that even though it should not be at all like a bold statement for a game company to to take a stand and say, hey, you know, Nazis are bad. Like there were actually people who were like, you're why are you making your game all political? Why are you going with the SJWs? Like. Like, you, you know, saying Nazis are bad is now, like, and for some, just, is, like, a big... It was so funny. Like, a debatable like point. how many fucking games exist yeah. that you shoot Nazis? Right. Like, endless amounts. Yeah. So, as somebody who has a lot of skin in the game and cares deeply about, you know, games, the culture around games, and also about... Uh, <coughs> and also about de- defeating fascism, I was glad just to see a, co- a company take... Aside in this, right? I appreciated that, but um, yes. which, which, yeah. like, it is not hard to take right. that side, even though, like, I'm, I'm with you on it as well. I was like, oh, that's cool that they're doing yeah. that. Like, I'm impressed with it, and then I'm like, why am I impressed with this? Right. This is not something to it be impressed sh- with. It shouldn't be, but it, but given grading on All a curve context, relative yeah. to how, when after in the way as Gamergate was happening, the deafening silence from so many c- companies. Just having a, a, a but company there's also do a part this. of me too that's like I'm so cynical about it. Like obviously, yeah. like do they even give it? Like you right. know, like it's just to sell their fucking game, uh, of course. And like you know, it kind of it kind of got me on the hype machine too. Like you know, like that was a really good marketing play yeah. for them, and it got me someone who does not care about this game mm-hmm. excited and interested to play it. And I am so tired of buying into the hype 
of bullshit games. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you talk a bit about <laughs> your experiences with the game, Anita? Uh, so I, okay, I played two hours of it. Uh-huh. Um, so there's obviously a lot more story and lore that <laughs> I could know about. Um, I fucking, I'm, I'm so pissed. Like, I'm so over AAA shooter bullshit. And, like, not all of them, but I feel like... They all are just so the same in every way, and I'm exhausted by it. And they're not even, like, to me, they're not good or enjoyable. And so with Wolfenstein specifically, like, sure, there are things that we could talk about that are good and bad, and we could be nuanced about it and whatever. But overall, like, I actually was just angry playing it. I felt like one... So it was, I was trying to trying to work through some of my feelings around it with a friend. And I was like, you know, it does this thing where it's just so over the top and so campy and just so excessive that it reminded me of Duke Nukem. Mm-hmm. And then my friend was like, you know, Duke Nukem is like based on like Wolfenstein and Doom, right? Like it was influenced by those games. And I was like, oh, no shit, right? <laughs> like obviously. But to me, like today in the way that we tell stories and the stories that we're telling and the like what we can do with games I'm just kind of insulted by it so there are so I'm not going to spoil anything beyond the first hour of the game but there the the scenes with like it feels like they're trying to be really progressive in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways and to me it doesn't feel progressive it feels really regressive right so you have a scene with a white dude who's saying the n-word over and over and over again and you're you're hiding in a closet and you're supposed to be scared of this guy he's your dad um and to me i'm just sitting there being like really like this is how you're demonstrating this like horribleness yeah and there's then, no subtlety to it whatsoever no, to, to there's put no it mildly to anything yeah. right and so like fast forward to when you see um like the Fraulein, the like the nazi leader woman mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the first one of the first people you're encountering yeah and she is so she's like a gleeful 12 year old in her excessive like enjoyment of murdering people and and like she's fat shaming her daughter she, in this way it's it yeah. is utterly and, horrifying to watch and, right and of course the defense of that that we'll hear is that well she's supposed to be bad and like so the fat sh- it's so it's the fat shaming of her daughter is also supposed exactly. to be bad and so that's the thing too in that like i'm I, as I'm, I was, I was, as I was playing the game, I was like, okay, I need to be able to articulate why this is a problem. And this happens a lot, right? Yeah. Like we'll sit and we'll watch something and we'll play something and we'll be like, what, what is it that's bothering me? I can't quite nail it. And, and I'm like, I don't want to make Nazis good or nuanced, right? So like, what is my problem with this? And I think some of it is that, um, in the same way that we use violence against women to show that men are worse and really, really bad than the protagonist, who's also shitty, but not as shitty because he doesn't beat women, it's the same kind of thing. And I take a lot of issue with, like, the abuse of people uh, or the, like, um, the express. sorry, I'm not being very articulate today, but the expression of that as the way that you show badness, right? right? Like the, the it, it, it functions in a way to normalize the behavior even while using it as... And it makes the player character, who's also doing horrible shit, yeah. seem totally reasonable and normal, right? Yeah. And so, like, there... It's, uh, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I think part of the so problem, having not played any of the game myself, but 
um, from the playthroughs that I've watched, part of the problem for me is that when you have depictions of Nazi characters, not just in this game, but part of a long line of depictions of Nazi characters that are these kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, cartoonish depictions, part of what happens is that people start to assume, like, that's how Nazis behave, that's how they look. And anything that doesn't approach that level that isn't kind of hyperbolic in that same way isn't really a Nazi. In the same way that if people assume that, like, if you're not actively turning on a fire hose and sticking police dogs on people, you're not really a bad racist. And it's like, no, there are levels to this shit, you know? And there are kind of larger um, manifestations of this kind of horrible ideology. You don't have to just be, like, a, you know, uh, stroking your mustache and twirling it like snidely whiplash type villain to be a Nazi or, you know, to be a horrible person or to do horrible things. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, I think there's also a a lot to talk about with regard to the game's portrayal of women, too, because the game has gotten a a lot of praise for having uh, a number of uh, prominent, you know, female characters. And certainly, like, I guess, you know, in terms of cultural impact, like, of course, it is like a net positive to have more, you know, characters who aren't like sexualized and who are portrayed as like leaders of uh of this movement and everything absolutely you know uh, like in a sense like yes it is a quote-unquote good thing but that doesn't mean that it's done uh perfectly or that that we can't take issue with it and i think that for me um so uh you know polygon ranked this as like the number 10 game of the year and in their piece about it they talked a lot about the the women in the game and one thing they said was um, how refreshing in a world in which women's bodies are consistently under threat it is to play a video game that respects women as equals, strong, capable, persistent. And I guess my feeling is that I feel like the game... So BJ, uh, the main character, um, my feeling is that he like lionizes women, that he kind of pe- puts them on a pedestal, right? Like he, Anya, his uh, pregnant um, girlfriend... I mean, he, you know, he talks about um, how he he wants to keep the fact that he's dying uh, secret from her. He says, like, it's my it's my burden to bear until it's hers, (laughs) like, which is not like a great that's like very kind of stereotypical masculine kind of keeping something like that to yourself. And it's not a really good relationship model. And also, like, he constantly talks about how Caroline is, um, you know, like a saint kind of in his in his eyes. And to me, it's like, I, 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 you know, what would have been like truly sort of maybe radical or at least more progressive in this game is what if the player was like the pregnant woman? Like, what if, the, what if yeah. dudes, what if dudes play, wanting to play this like shooter, you know, quasi power fantasy game had to like play as a pregnant yeah. woman? Like that would be like, like more challenging you're still safely embodied in like the the body of this you know straight white uh man right totally so i will say that um i having a female like a visibly pregnant female character who who i 
I believe is not sidelined. She no, participates yeah. and she fights in the battles. Definitely. I really appreciate that because yeah. I like too often when women are pregnant, they're like coddled and you have to be like safe and we have to protect you and you like you're you're useless at that point. Fallout right? shelter anyone. <laughs> oh man, I yeah. forgot about yeah, that. Yeah. Oh, that was bullshit. Yeah. Um and so I appreciate that. But for me, like, you know, I read that article too, and I Yes, there is something important about having female characters, having a lot of them, having them be present and participating and relevant. And leaders sometimes. 100%. Yeah. But for me, like, okay, look, I am cynical as fuck. Like, I've, <laughs> when you've researched as many female characters in games as I have, at some point you're like, uh, um, I, I just, it's really hard for me to get excited about it in the context of a game like this, right? Like, I... 100% people should talk about it. We should analyze those characters. But I think the game is kind of reprehensible. Like, I think it's I think it's a shitty shooter to begin with. I don't even think it's, I, like, enjoyable to play. Right, I mean, I those think it's, difficulty yeah. spikes were fucking yeah. garbage. Yeah, it's, the difficulty is really poorly yeah. designed. I don't think the I don't think it's a fundamentally yeah. good and it's, shooter. It's not doing anything new or interesting, sure. right? Like, sure. I'm like, oh, there are Nazis hiding on this ship for eight months? Oh, convenient that I had to go shoot them all right now. Like, it's just, there's nothing interesting about it from that perspective. And it, I want more. Like, it's not that I don't want shooters to exist. I think that they can definitely be a part of the environment of games as they should. I just want to see an evolution in them. I want to see something more happening in these spaces where it's not just like, here is cutscene story, here is shooting things, here is cutscene story. And like, the thing with Wolfenstein is I cannot get down with how disgustingly exaggerated the violence is. Like, I do not want to see heads rolling off and then like carrying headless bodies onto a ship and then I'm supposed to have feelings about this. Like, I just... I just said it. Like, I just, I can't. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm not, I know that I'm not explaining this well because I'm still trying to process how I feel about it and why the exaggeration bothers me so much. Because I, I think that that's a useful storytelling technique in some context. It's just the reveling in it, I think, that I have such a hard time with. Like, it's so, um, not self aggrandizing, but like, Smug, I mm, guess. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's it. Mm-hmm. This is a podcast is a really weird place to work out your feelings. <laughs> but it's like, all we have. Maybe I know I'm like maybe in like a week I could be like, oh shit, I don't agree with any of this and I figured out the answer, but I guess that's what happens when you do this <laughs> weekly, right? When you right. don't have time to sit and process sure. your feelings, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, the that I just really I'm really annoyed by this game in a lot of ways. <laughs> Well, then, let's move on to my favoritely titled, What's Your Deal? Oh, wow. I love that you just made up a word. Favoritely. Favoritely. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing, y'all. We've gotten a lot of messages of people liking What's Your Deal. Of course. I've only gotten a couple from you that don't like it. So y'all better speak up because I am losing this battle. Also, Ebony came up with a new one. What was it? Like... The fucks your fucks problem. Your problem. <laughs> fucks your, yeah, just fucks your problem. <laughs> Which I almost like, love more. So those are your two like choices if you aggressive. ask me. Yeah, but I yeah, felt like that right. was on so brand for us. So, okay. Well, it's still what's your deal for, for the time being. Um, yeah. Ebony, the fuck's your problem? Anita. No, <laughs> what's your deal? <laughs> I'll tell you. I have two things. One is... Uh, 
in a continuing effort to give you a peek at um, how this podcast is recorded. So, you know, I'm watching Anita right now on this tiny computer screen and she's got hair escaping from her top bun and she looks like alfalfa and it's the most adorable thing I've ever seen. I can't, I can't focus on anything else. Uh, no. Okay. So what my deal this week is I want to shout out, uh, um, artist called Quinta Brunson, who um, does web series and videos. Um, most people probably know her from the work she does for BuzzFeed. Um, she had this incredibly viral video where she millie rocks around the world. Um, as y'all know from the short, you know, what, five episodes we've had so far, I'm like Issa Rae, okay? I'm always rooting for the black people. I'm team natural hair. So you know I'm always going to shout out black content creators. So Quinta Brunson, is she, she's funny. She's just, you know, like smart and cool one of my favorite videos of hers is um natural hair versus the perm which is hilarious i encourage you to go check it out you can find her at quinta brunson on twitter but today december 11th she has a new web series called quinta versus everything um coming out that you can walk, watch via facebook watch and it just looks hilarious watch the trailer alone for her being a glammed up mario and you will lose your mind so that's my deal for the week. Me shouting cool. out Team Natural Hair and more black people, as is my want. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. All right, Carol, what's uh, your deal? My deal this week is a film um, on Netflix. It's under the Netflix Originals banner. It's called My Happy Family, and it is a film from Georgia, not the state, but the country. And it is about, like, it's about a, a middle-aged woman um, who lives in this household with like her elderly parents, her husband, her um you know her children who are like in their early 20s, her daughter's husband. It's this it's this house that's just bursting with like generations of people. And she decides um to go live in an apartment by herself. I, I like and I believe her decision comes from just uh being tired of of being expected to do the tremendous amount of emotional labor that a woman is expected to do when kind of surrounded by, uh, you know, just kind of embedded in that kind of life, her her entire life. And her decision to do this sends, you know, uproars uh, through her family, her, everyone objects, they don't understand. Um, and, you know, you, you, you see her in her apartment and there's these quiet scenes of her just like listening to music and like just doing thing little things for herself right which probably throughout her whole life she's really almost never had even this even a moment to indulge in things just just for herself and so it's it's very much like a slice of life movie which is you know probably like my favorite kind of film it's it's very observant of its characters. It's very kind of the acting is very naturalistic. You really feel like you're seeing real people go through the stuff of their daily lives. And it doesn't in any way kind of um, uh, try to hit you over the, your over the head with its themes. But just through telling this honest sort of story of this woman doing this thing, making this change in her life, all these things about... Um, patriarchy and emotional labor and the expectations that are placed on women in, you know, so many cultures just kind of naturally 
are illuminated and um it's just so wonderfully acted and so lively um it's you know i just think it's a really beautiful film so my rec- my netflix recommendation for the moment is my happy family awesome yeah. all right she sounds like a superhero so- frankly <laughs> leaving a bunch of people behind to go live by herself Ooh. i support it uh, so my deal this week, so I uh, I fly a lot. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot of shit on planes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually I take the opportunity to watch the stuff that I didn't have time to, that I feel like I should know about and that kind of thing on planes. But this time, flying back, um, I was scanning through like the options and I saw that Broadchurch season three was on. I was flying British Airways, so they had a bunch of British shows. Um, and I... Don't know why I forgot about Broadchurch. I really liked the first season. Did y'all watch Broadchurch? I watched all of the first season and part of season two. Okay, so I watched all of the first season. Did you like it? I did, but it's one of those things, and I know I say this as, you know, a crime drama obsessive, but it was so depressing. Um, Yeah, I just, it's not something I can rewatch. Okay, so I watched... I watched the first one. I think I watched the second one, but I have literally no memory of it. And I was like, whatever. They're like each each season is self-contained for yeah. the most part. Like it, it you know, it, it helps if you know the backstory of some of the characters. But I I don't love I don't love procedurals and I don't love crime dramas for reasons that we've talked about on the podcast. Right. Where it's like, oh, the state always wins and you always catch the bad guy, et cetera, et cetera. I think Broadchurch does does it a little bit in it. I don't know. Does it better? Does it in a way that I can get behind more? Also, I'll watch anything with David Tennant in it. So, like, let's be real. <laughs> That's oh, a huge part of this oh, as well. Brother. <laughs> um, but okay. So, season three, the um, the narrative around season three is that there a a woman who is nearing her fifties has been uh, attacked and raped, and um, by a stranger. She was knocked out. And the beginning of the first episode, you see her reporting to the police and you see the police taking, you know, her statement and and doing all of the doing all the stuff. Okay, I started crying a lot watching the first couple episodes and I was not being triggered. That's not what was happening here. And it took me a little while to figure out why I was reacting so strongly. It was because in this show, they treat survivors and victims with such compassion and care like i'm getting i'm tearing up just thinking about watching this again and like like the i don't i cannot think of another example in the media in which i've seen a representation of treating sexual assault survivors with so much respect and belief like to the degree that they were that like she says do you believe me and they say yes like unequivocally. Um, And the, as you watch the entire show, you can tell that without a doubt, they consulted with uh, advocates like sexual assault advocates, because there are very, very pointed, specific things that are addressed and brought up. And so a couple of the things that I really liked in it are that um, one you see. uh, So obviously, this is through a this takes place in Britain. It's through the British system. um, I think Uh, you see, 
when she's brought into the police station for the first time, there is someone there who is not an officer that is there. She's an advocate to specifically help her, um, like walk her through and be there for emotional support and explain how things are and like communicate with the cops if she doesn't feel comfortable. And then for the rest of the show, you see she gets she gets connected to an advocate from a local organization that is strictly there just to support the survivor. So anything you need day and night, if you don't want to talk to the cops, you don't talk to the cops. If you don't like if you want me to hold your hand while we go and do this statement, if you just need to if you need anything. Right. And so just watching that support and that care was just remarkable. And you have these moments in the in it where one of the other officers who is a woman actually says, well, what was she wearing? Was she drunk? And the Miller, who is the 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 other woman, the the, the main, lead, the female lead, the on female the show? lead. Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, is like, how fucking dare you? Like, just rips her a new one. And so, any time that you see these moments of victim blaming, it's called out instantly. Like, without a doubt, there's no question that this is a thing that happened. Um, and then I feel I think that there's something really valuable in the support workers actually. This woman who was helping her is sort of new at this. And she says, who supports the support workers? Right. Like yeah. the secondary trauma that comes out in these spaces. So, like, I I mean, I kind of highly recommend it because I've never I've never had such a strong reaction to like a crime procedural. And I've never seen this kind of like care and compassion um, presented in this way um, in these kinds of stories. So. Yeah, and you I know, think obviously Anita, it can be really triggering for yeah. people. So that comes with a big warning. Uh, Anita, I think you will be um, pleasantly optimistic because Chris Chibnall, who is the showrunner and writer for Broadchurch, is the new showrunner for Doctor Who. What? Yeah. So oh, they're yay! yeah. So they're replacing Stephen <laughs> know, Moffat with was... someone who I I hope you know we oh, can we can put our faith in. That's. So exciting. And also Jodie Whittaker is on there, who is the new doctor. The woman who plays Miller, who's the female detective, I fucking love her. Me too. The thing about British. Oh, I was like, I kind of want her to be the doctor, to be honest. But like, whatever. I think Jodie. She was in an she was in um, an episode of Doctor Who when Matt Smith. In fact, she was Matt Smith's first first outing. Olivia Coleman. I don't remember that. All right. Well, that's cool. I yeah. Like there's something about um. I, I feel like there there's some so British a lot of British television has different problems than our like American television does and so like having old, like this was a, almost everyone in the cast in the story of this season is like in their 50s right like it's not a show about like young people necessarily and like women are still considered desirable and they're not like everyone's not like a fucking supermodel like there's just a like a it feels a little more sincere and genuine in terms of like the casting and who, yeah, whatever. I highly recommend it. So that's me. That's my deal. I'm so excited for the new Doctor Who. All right, that's our show. You can catch us back here every single Wednesday. Once again, a big, huge thanks to our Drip backers. Drip is Kickstarter's brand new subscription-based crowdfunding platform. And guess what? We're listener-supported. That means you. Every dollar you contribute goes directly to producing this podcast. So if you want to pitch in and join this community, we've got some great rewards for you. Head over to d.rip slash femfreak and join us. If you want to help us reach our end-of-year fundraising goal to keep everything we do at Feminist Frequency free and available to all people with internet access, 
please visit feministfrequency.com slash donate. If you like this show, we would love it if you would leave a review for us wherever you are listening to this. It really helps spread the word. And you can also spread the word on things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and with all of your friends because they might like us too. You can check out all of our work and all of our other podcasts at FeministFrequency.com and you can find each of us on Twitter. I am at Anita Sarkeesian. I'm at Carolyn Michelle. I am at Pam Greer's Gun Holster. That's one word. <laughs> or, or you can find me at Ebony Aster, but I don't check that account as often. That's such a lie. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. 